Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to Where Credits Do. I'm your host, Yulia Judina, senior reporter at Tearsheet. In today's episode, we're talking about buy now, pay later. No, not the consumer version that first comes to mind. We're diving into the business-to-business version today. While B2C BMPL continues to dominate the headlines, its less talked about cousin in the more significant B2B world is just starting to get the spotlight. An increasing number of businesses are transacting online, but the payment rails still disappoint many times. And given this shakeup in supply chains, companies could truly benefit from a product that can help them navigate cash flow problems. This is what B2B BMPL aims to do, bringing the latest digital tools to age-old methods of business-to-business transactions. We're talking about this today with my guests, Jamie Beaumont, CEO at Plater, a B2B BMPL fintech based in the UK, and Yasemin Karimi, head of product at Kodak. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining me on today's podcast episode. We are chatting about uh, B2B BMPL, and we've seen a very, you know, rising interest in the consumer side of things with BMPL literally taking over most headlines over the past year. Uh, it started with a lot of excitement, but now I feel like it's uh, falling into a bit of a criticism uh, area. So uh, I want to, I'd like to get perhaps, uh, Jamie, your overview of uh, the market right now and what is the opportunity here for the business side? Yeah, listen, it's um, it's a very different opportunity, actually, uh, to the consumer side. And obviously, consumer side has got some a bit of a bad rep at the moment. Um, but, but still expanding. And, I mean, when we look at it, the B2B market is, is actually vastly larger than the consumer market for buy now, pay later. So there's a huge opportunity, but in our eyes, it's actually split into two separate markets. You've got the marketplace version checkout, um, buy now, pay later for the B2B world. And you have what, what, what uh, we are, which is a kind of post-purchase offline checkout that deals with um, helping businesses split invoices that they've received. Um, and it's a huge market. When you look at the UK alone, SMEs spend over a trillion. Um, and so to tap into uh, the B2B market is, it gives, I suppose, the opportunity for a, a, a much bigger spend for each invoice that gets split or each checkout that, that goes through and allows businesses to have more information from accounting systems and accurate data and, and just starts lending to businesses that right now are completely underserved. Amazing. Yasmin, what do you think about the market currently and the positioning of B2B BMPL within the ecosystem? Yeah, sure. So so I I, I think that um it's best to describe it as as kind of a, a very known concept when it comes to to B2B and, and small businesses in general. Um it's something that's been around, you know, as a concept. Um BMPL is actually something that's been around for quite some time through through trade finance finance and, and businesses aren't um you know they're they're familiar with this concept of needing access to finance in order to to pay their suppliers or access goods and services to to basically grow their business or survive so i think that positioning it in the same bucket as um b2c bmpl can be somewhat confused um i also think that b2b on the consumer side is a lot more a lot less complex um a lot a lot easier um, from an experience perspective, particularly on the underwriting side, which is where kind of we come in and how, um, 
you know, play to use Kodak today is to to underwrite those those businesses. So as a concept, um, basically not not new at all for businesses, for consumers, newer concepts. Um, but I, I definitely don't think the two should be bucketed together. For sure. There's definitely lots of differences. And I feel like there's also um, kind of to Jamie's point earlier, there's a lot of pain points that uh, businesses have currently when it comes to invoicing, when it comes to payments, when it comes to um, just like managing financing more so than the consumer side. Um, And I'm wondering here, Jamie, if you could give us a little bit of uh, details on what sort of cash flow pain points can B2B BMPL help with? I think firstly, because you work in the B2B world, you you kind of start connecting with businesses in in lots of different industries. Um, We know that, for instance, within FMCG, there's huge cash flow issues because, you know, it's going out, purchasing the products and then payment terms to large supermarkets, what it might be coming back in, are much, much longer. So it leaves this kind of cash gap. Um, So... There are a ton, listen, there are a ton of issues in different industries. You know, we know that the venture backed uh, types of businesses, as they scale, um, they take on larger expenses and that prohibits their future scale. So there's a lot of um, issues that that we can solve. I think, um, so what Yaz was saying, like B2C is is actually quite simple. Uh, It's a very easy customer journey. Um, With B2B, the the kind the volume isn't as much uh but the value is much larger so you know when you look at if you go onto Klarna you go buy some jeans or asos and you, you know they're 30 quid and you end up paying 10 quid a month you know we can do invoices the average invoice uh, around fifteen thousand pounds at the moment so to be able to underwrite for that and and you know thankfully we use someone like kodak to be able to do that but the issues that we're solving go all the way from cash flow from growth to taking advantage of, of discounts because people can split the cost of things but still get upfront discounts from software houses. There's, there's just too many uh, issues that businesses face that we can help solve, um, but it is a far more complex mechanism than it is in, in the BTC world, as, as Yaz was saying. So we need to be really specific on how we underwrite. Yes, could you give us a little bit of an overview on the under underwriting part of it and how you, I guess, uh, maybe also a little bit of an insight on this uh, narrative that uh, BMPL is not lending, is not credit, it's a separate thing. And I'm wondering here how you think about all of this when it comes to underwriting. We work with a number of buy now, pay later providers to basically facilitate the flow of data between them and their customers. So, for example, we basically enable them to automatically collect financial statements digitally for underwriting. So what that means is we'll allow the BMPL provider who's basically offering finance to to those businesses at the point of sale um, to basically say, okay, you want to connect, you want to be able to access this finance, therefore we need to underwrite you. How are we going to underwrite you? We're going to use Kodak to be able to get those financial statements from your accounting software or get your sales data from your your commerce software or get your bank account data from your bank account. So where we come in is we're basically providing that that data mechanism to um, our our clients, those BMPL providers. And in terms of where BMPL sits, um, like I said, kind of uh, at the start, I don't, I don't actually bucket it that uh, differently than the way other lenders use our platform. Well, particularly for for how they use us, right? It's all about 
if we're talking about it in kind of high level terms, it's all about being able to get data to underwrite. And I think the main difference really is the experience side. So it's about where are you offering that business, that credit? And with BNPL, what you're able to do is deeply embed it into the checkout experience. And, and as part of that, you know, do it at the, the right point in time rather than um, rely on a business kind of organically coming to you as another type of lender and trying to secure that finance, if that makes sense. Definitely. And I feel like here, um, I'm wondering what you guys think about, you know, the differences here in terms of, you know, the pitfalls of over relying on BMPL, like we've seen on the consumer side. But I feel like on the consumer side, consumers are also more used to credit in some sort of way. So they're, you know, they may have credit cards or they're, you know, it, it's, uh, it's put right there in their in their flow of uh, of shopping or making purchases. Whereas for small businesses, perhaps they've been not as accustomed to getting credit or getting funding. They've not been as served as the consumer side or even the commercial side of banking. So what is the educational part that needs to happen here for small businesses when they engage in some sort of financing such as uh, B2B, BMPL? One of the main reasons is, is don't forget, and, and this is one thing that Kodak helped with is, Generally speaking, SMEs are underserved because credit bureaus, first of all, don't know how to, to rate them. Um, it's based, generally speaking, on you know stale and old companies' house data. And so they're not used to actually being told that they can borrow um, and therefore what the appropriate amount to borrow is and what the reasons for borrowing are. Um, and so a lot of it is because they're just you know grossly underserved by the banks. Now you have uh, a whole new age of alternative finance for, for small businesses, whether that's revenue-based financing, whether it's kind of SaaS uh, invoice factoring, such as Pipe and, and Recap, um, all the way to buy now, pay later checkouts like Billy and, um, and Two, and, and, or, or whether it's you know, post-purchase checkouts such as Plater. Um, the education piece is, is purely just around how this type of funding or how the funding that you help businesses get, how it helps that business uh, and how it helps their business move forward, not stifles them under a load of debt that they can't pay back. And that's where our live underwriting data comes from, um, from open banking and from, you know, attaching to accounting systems. So we can say and educate each individual business on their own scenario and then how they can use it to their benefit, but but absolutely making sure that it's not the opposite way around, that you put them you know, uh, under too much debt pressure, in, in which case the business obviously folds and it's bad for each party. Yeah, so I think that actually very much depends on the lender's risk appetite. And what we see is that it varies greatly. Um, I think just to, to kind of tack on to, to what Jamie was saying, and Jamie just put it really, really nicely to say like, okay, we do want to make the experience really, really seamless, but you don't want to make it so seamless that the business doesn't actually know what they're getting into and then they suddenly end up in lots of debt. It's actually, that would be achieving the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Um, but I think I think that um, the way that the user experience basically and having the small business having to connect data is essentially introducing, I don't want to say barrier, but a step to help with the consideration of like, okay, you're, you're about to actually secure a finance product. Um, this is this is the, the terms of 
that finance agreement because we've been able to get the data from your accounting software. We've done, we've ran that through our um, internal risk models and we've spat out whatever the decision is. I think in terms of putting, in, in terms of educating that business, actually getting them to physically do an act like connecting their data, I think is a key, a key part of enabling them to understand that you are providing access to your data to secure this service, rather than if you can pair it to the consumer side, which you've alluded to being very, very different, the experience is so seamless that it's almost like I didn't even realize that I've just committed myself to uh, getting access to credit. And actually, as Jamie alluded to, something can go quite wrong with that, right? If I miss a payment, then I may not be able to get, it may be as serious as not being able to get a mortgage in the future. So I think actually for the B2B side, introducing that, um, very necessary step to connect the data is is a really really easy way to get them to understand that you're you're about to enter into this this credit agreement and and to to focus on on your question Yulia um as i said in terms of risk models it really does vary depending on the lender and and what stage that lender is in what what we're seeing is that um the appetite for businesses to secure alternative methods of finance as Jamie kind of alluded to there's obviously different types of finance BNPL just being one of a whole bucket um, we're really seeing that businesses are open to securing different forms of finance but also that that lenders are open to using alternative methods of um, underwriting meaning getting different types of data to basically build out really bespoke risk models that allow them to extend those um, credit agreements to businesses who previously couldn't get credit agreements from the likes of banks or or legacy lenders. Um, so yeah, th those are some of the things that, that we're seeing. Awesome. And then given this wide variety of uh, options that are, you know, entering the market for, for small businesses, whether it's digital lenders or, um, you know, revenue-based financing or uh, as you guys mentioned, uh, what's what's been leading this increasing popularity of B2B, BMPL within uh, this uh, wide array of solutions? What do you think? Access to capital is, is one of the, the main things. Um, the ability to, I mean, when, so it, right, let's just split this again um, between checkout and, and non-checkout. So when you look at checkout, it gives the ability for people to purchase. Um, it lowers the barrier for people to purchase accessibly. Um, with small amounts of access to capital. They're not taking on five million pound loans over 10 year terms. It's a transactional um, process. That means that somebody can split the cost of, you know, a thousand pound printer um, over three months uh, and it helps that business with their cash flow. That's one of the main, you know, it, and it's huge distribution, don't forget, for these businesses. So it, it helps it helps three people at one time. It helps the lender because they're deploying funds. It helps the purchaser because it's helping their cash flow. And it helps the seller because it helps them with their distribution to businesses. And then hopefully, and it's the reason why Klarna did so well, hopefully increases the sale value um, in the long term because there's more people purchasing. Within the other side of buy now, pay later, um, access to capital is, is seriously difficult. So to offer someone facilities like we do um, in the hundreds of thousands of pounds when you know, a bank would tell them no, um, they, don't, they can't get revenue-based financing because you know, they're, not, you know, they're not an e-com business or whatever it might be. 
Um, these are just, you know, the reason is exploding in both directions is because access to capital and distribution is really, really difficult for any seller or any purchaser. Um, and buy now, pay later offers those solutions to the problem. Um, and they're great. They're, they're both ends of, of the spectrum are absolutely fantastic for, for the business and the sellers, but it just needs to be led with the responsible nature of the fact that, you know, people are still borrowing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I totally agree with, with everything Jamie just said, but um, I guess from, from our perspective, for small businesses, BNPL is, is a flexible, non-dilutive option to increase working capital, right? So it, it gives them that flexibility to go and say, I don't want to give away ownership of my business, um, so I'm going to go and, and secure finance another way, of which BNPL is one of those solutions. In the current, current environment in particular, obtaining capital is even more difficult. So that's why a lot of the, these alternative methods are, are gaining a lot of popularity. Um, also, the fact that within the current climate costs are rising doesn't help. So it means that businesses are seeking even more finance and they, they need more um, in terms of each of those transactions, in terms of the loans sizes that they actually get is gonna be higher, right? Because they, they need to cover more costs. And to a large extent, as I kind of alluded to, um, throughout this conversation, it's just, just a rebranding exercise. And it's a concept that has been around for years under the guise of supply chain financing. So. Um, what what I, I think the biggest observation is that these companies have done an amazing job of, of jumping on the success of, of an already proven model and finding new ways of innovating on that model. Definitely, I, I fully agree with you on that. And I actually feel like it could have uh, really wide ranging implications here, even more so than on the consumer side, because as Jamie said, it was it's very transactional on the consumer side and it allows people to make more purchases. But I feel like on the, you know, for this, for the small and middle market uh, economy, it could really, really um, help and boost, uh, you know, the segment, this market segment and solve a lot of the issues here, um, especially regarding, you know, the supply chain uh, services that we've seen lately and obviously the cash flow things that we've discussed earlier. But I'm curious to hear your each of your insights on what's the potential that can be unlocked here for uh, small and medium-sized businesses if they you know, engage in such financing options. Well, I, I can speak on behalf of Plata. Um, so we, we effectively, I think Yaz said it really well, so we're a non-dilutive um, form of finance where we don't even take revenue either. It's purely subscription-based for us. And we're kind of the first people to, to kind of, I suppose, invent that within lending. Um, the ability of what, what small businesses can achieve is just being able to, we, we used as a growth mechanism um, and we're also used to reduce burn. We used to extend runway. We used to take advantage um, to, to lower already existing costs we can redeploy extra liquidity within businesses to, to put into high growth areas. We can allow them to make that higher earlier because you can split the cost over a period of time. So we allow for decisions to be made that might not have been um, made within that specific budget with them spending the same amount of money so they don't have to spend extra. And it's really just a access to capital, a way that they can grow, a way that they can keep things sustainable so they're not putting themselves under huge amounts of pressure. Um, for businesses that just aren't given the ability to borrow from anybody else. Now within check, you know, when you look at checkouts, um, it actually helps much smaller businesses actually. So when you look at um, the likes of Okodo who 
um, go on marketplaces, uh, potentially construction, who then you look at construction companies, it could be one or two people, businesses, um, being able to actually lower, like remove the cash flow issues from them can, can actually mean a difference of paying a mortgage during the month and not, or being able to hire the person to start scaling the business when they couldn't have done before. So there's lots of potential for businesses who can use this type of funding. Um, but because there's so many industries, it's very difficult to pinpoint just one. Yeah, so I um I guess from my side, there's two kind of two main things. The beauty of it is that it, it benefits both buyers and sellers. Buyers from the perspective of great user experience and sellers from the perspective of higher conversion rates and higher transaction values. But it also benefits the business from the perspective of the late payments crisis, which is just going to be getting worse, right, in the deteriorating economic condition um, that we kind of face with now. And it's actually a pretty big problem that has massive network effects. Is if if a business, for example, doesn't get paid, they can't pay their suppliers, then that business can't pay their bills, and so on and so forth. So it's just a vicious cycle that goes around. So, I think from the perspective of actually benefiting a network of different type of personas uh, within the ecosystem, but also addressing really key systemic problems like the late payments crisis, I think those are the two areas where I would highlight that the potential kind of really really lies. That's a really good point as well, by the way, from from Yaz, the the fact that this like small businesses are those that are affected the most by by non-payers. Um, and it's the difference between, you know, I've had it in previous businesses like paying salaries, uh, businesses who are profitable but can't pay salaries because their debtor days are so huge. So if you can remove that, um, it, I honestly can't tell you what benefit that is to a small business. It's so massive, um, but it is it's it is the butterfly you know it, it is a chain reaction one business can't and you look at just look at um the you know lockdown with covid um suddenly people weren't selling anymore they were actually just chasing it was like please pay me the money because they're not going to sell anything to anyone anymore because no one knows what they're doing but they sure as hell have hundreds of thousands if not millions of pounds um from people who owe them money and that was you know what one of the biggest crises that i saw when i spoke to a lot of small businesses when we were pivoting into this model during the lockdown, um, it was crisis time for pretty much everyone. How do we get the money through the door? And if you can solve that, then it's it's an entire industry by itself. So then do you see an uptick in demand for this kind of a service uh, in the future, especially given uh, you know the inflationary environment and we have the geopolitical crisis? So how do you see this moving forward, Jamie? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, the cost of goods is going up. So if you can spread the cost of those goods, why wouldn't you? Um, you know, as I uh, said, the, the sellers who need to be paid, if you can reduce the need for you know, accounts receivable um, and reduce your death days to almost nil, then absolutely. So I think, it, you know, you look at some businesses, you know, Hopin, Peloton, all of these during COVID, they were perfect times for, for um, those businesses. Right now, going into, you know, high inflationary environment, um, you know, most probable recession environment, this is perfect for, you know, I'm not saying it's perfect for Plato, but it's perfect solution to offer for businesses out in, in the small to medium enterprise market at the moment, because, yeah, I mean, if, if you can, if you can't be hit by the sign of the times as hard as you are at the moment, then it means that we can distribute capital to businesses that desperately need it. And, um, and it's just going to have a huge uptick. Don't forget we're 10 years behind B2C, but we'll catch up within two or three. Um, so it's going to be a huge, huge hockey stick um, uptake of, of alternative finance by now later in the next two or three years. 
To read the transcript of our conversation, head over to Tearsheet.co and make sure you subscribe to Where Credits Do wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be out with a new episode every two weeks, bringing you conversations with industry leaders on the ever-changing lending landscape. And if you're interested in more content, you can subscribe to our lending newsletter and briefing in your inbox every other week. Thanks for listening and see you at the next one.